Amen. Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of Luke and open to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. We will be in Luke chapter 2, verse 40, but we're going to begin in chapter 1. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we have to gather to study your word. Lord, we ask that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text that we're in today. Uh, Father, I pray that you give us understanding. Lord, we pray that your spirit would soften our heart, Lord. Uh, we ask, um, we long to hear your voice, Lord. We pray that you would um, just meet each one of us where we are. We're uh, in, in the spectrum of maturity and growth, Lord. We are all in different places in our walk with you. And we're thankful, Lord, that the, the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And you are able uh, to meet us through the word, Lord, right where we are. And so, Father, we, we love you, Lord. We praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Okay, in the group here, who who likes going to the... I'm not... Money aside, who likes going to the, the theaters, like the big screen? I mean, getting the big old tub of popcorn and the big old soda and the... Um, I, the I like the Sour Patch Kids, you know? And you just really take in the whole experience. Who likes that? I love it. I love, well, I love it. And who doesn't like it? I didn't even think to ask in the other service. So there are people. Well, I'm married to one who doesn't. Uh, I'm married to somebody who doesn't like going to the movies. It's just not her. So, so and, and, and money actually is an issue in the real world. So, and now you have to take out a small loan to go see a movie these days. And if you're, that's, that's not even talking about popcorn and drinks and that sort of thing. And so when we do on the rare occasion, a couple times a year, we'll go catch a movie. And I know, see, I'd like going to movies, but I know that I have to pitch it just right. I have to align everything. You know, oh, we'll go to dinner here. We'll leave the kids with grandma. And then after dinner, we'll go see a movie. You know, <clears throat> a movie. And, okay, we've, we've traded off. But in, in making my pitch, I've learned that in order to do it, I really have to screen the movies. I, I know that I only get a couple of years. So the one I go, I really have to kind of screen it out. I know that before I make my pitch to Anna, I've got to go to Plugged In Online and read the whole review from Focus on the Family. So I kind of go up with my printed out piece of paper. And according to them, this is, this is, there's going to be a couple mild words. Look at in the, in these other inappropriate areas, it's totally empty. It's good. A few years ago, I pitched for our anniversary. We'd go to dinner at the Spanish restaurant. She grew up in Spain. She loves the Spanish restaurant. After that, I could choose the movie. The movie I really wanted to see from the previews. Paul Blart, Mall Cop. <laughs> I love dumb movies. I love slapstick humor. And I saw this about the guy who is a mall cop on his little thing, the Segway driving around the mall. I'm like, this is going to be hilarious. It met all of the credentials, and Anna's like, oh, man, this looks so dumb. I'm like, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> and so for our anniversary, we did her part, and then we did my part. And the movie was really bad. Like, I mean, it was just like I wanted to get up midway through and leave the theater, but I couldn't do that because then I feel like my reputation with her would be stained. I didn't want her to... You know, and so we're sitting there, and there's like two people in the whole theater watching this thing. And I'm like, man, every funny part was in the preview, which totally failed to meet the parameter of a, pre a preview. A man of the trailer, they're supposed to suck you in, 
give you enough, but not let anything get away. And you want to watch the rest of the movie because then all of the stuff comes out in it. Now, sometimes there'll be those previews where the story picks up. Then all of a sudden they go to a black screen. They go, ah, 10 years later, 40 years later. Then the story picks up again there. Well, you guys are going to, what does preview have to do with watching this text that we're in? Well, well, the thing is the story that we're in 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 Luke chapter 2, which we're going to get to, it's the only place in scripture where it records anything from Jesus's boyhood. And, and it really is a bland story. You could read it over and just go, oh, they went to Jerusalem. His parents forgot him in Jerusalem. They go back. He's in the temple teaching. And then they all go back home. And he continued to grow. There really doesn't seem to be a whole lot here. But there has to be more. Why did Luke include this? And in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is sort of our our governing statement, our governing verse. Everywhere we go through Luke, this little passage helps us to understand why Luke wrote what he wrote and, and what he's trying to accomplish. The first two verses he explains that as much, as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So we learn Luke, he didn't come into the scene of the gospel of the church being formed until much later, after Jesus had been executed, after he was buried, after he rose, years later, he becomes a Christian, starts here, and he says, in our generation... Tons of people sought out to record the events that happened in our midst. They, they wrote them down. They were eyewitnesses. I was not an eyewitness of the things that have happened. Then in verse 3, he goes on to say, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. So here's Theophilus. He's a, a government official of some sort. We know, don't really know exactly. Luke had investigated everything. Tradition holds that he had even interviewed Mary towards the end of her life. He'd sat down with her, probably sat down with Jesus' siblings and asked him, hey, let's go back to here. What can you tell me about the early childhood? And so the story we have today is not found anywhere. All of the other Gospels, Matthew goes from birth to 30 years old where he begins his ministry. Um, Mark starts right at him in adulthood. John goes very quickly from creation before creation, eternity passed straight into the life of Jesus and then, and then goes very quickly with nothing being said about these years. Yet Luke includes this story. And, and this week, as I, I've been wrestling with this text, feeling like there's something very significant for each of us to learn in this story. Kind of, you know, like the, 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 uh, the ping pong balls bouncing around in my head. I'm like, oh, I feel like there's something really significant here, but I don't know how to articulate. So I run a bunch of stuff through Anna and I'm, I'm talking to her. She's like, I don't see what you're saying. I'm like, oh no, I'm getting trouble, you know, even to last night. And I, I do believe there's significance in this story. I believe that the story's injected for us to kind of see that as parents, as those have to, people who have to deal with other people, which is everybody has to deal with other people. Um, Luke wants to begin answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? 
And at 12 years old, we're going to see that he was deity, that he was Lord. And as a 12-year-old, he could dumbfound the experts in the law. That even from an early age, in hindsight, his parents say, you know what? He was deity. He knew who he was, and they knew. So in Luke chapter 2, verse 40, it reads, The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey and began, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who had heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And so here in the midst of the story, the story that's not found anywhere else, Luke puts it in sort of bookends. In verse 40 comes right after he was, he was at the temple. They made the, the offering, um, what they did for the child at, at 40 days. Um, then the screen kind of goes black. And then our picture today 12 years later, the story of Jesus. Then we read today's story. Then Luke in 52 writes the story. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God. The screen's going to go blank. When we pick up the story next week, 18 years will have elapsed. John the Baptist will enter the scene with his dreadlocks, eating locusts and honey, calling people out for their sin as the forerunner of the Messiah. And so here, there's 30 years that kind of that this story God decided to insert for us. And all week, you know, I am um, in my ministry. One of the things I've been drawn to is law enforcement chaplaincy. I was never attracted to firefighters chaplaincy. Like, I mean, I love firefighters. I work. I mean, we work with them. But I just, you know, I'm more tend to be a cop, you know, like there's something went wrong here. Who's at fault? So cops don't really care. Like, I mean, they care, but their role is to find out who's at fault, who's to blame. Paramedics show up and they just want to, they don't care about who's at fault. They just want to help those that are hurting. They don't care if the guy's handcuffed and just did a bunch of stuff. Their, their job is to get him well. And so I'm reading this story about Jesus being left back at the temple. And all I want to know is who is at fault. What kind of parents leave their kid for three days on accident? 
Especially like this is God trusts you with raising God. And it doesn't look good on your resume that you lost God. So is God at fault? I mean, is Mary at fault here? And then it's like, no. See, if this story was any other story, if you told this story to me and it wasn't Jesus, it was any other person, automatically 12-year-old boy, they're totally at fault. But see, we're dealing with Hebrews 4.15. If you want to shift over there with me, this is kind of another, a governing issue we have to deal with in this story, which complicates things tremendously in my, my search for trying to figure out who's at fault. So in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, this verse is very encouraging to us as children of the Lord, as, as Christians. It says, for we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So we, as we call out to God, as we go through life, as we go through struggles, we know that God knows what we're going through. Jesus came to earth. He humbled himself. He became man. He lived fully as human. The struggles and issues that we deal with, he dealt with. Yet he did it without sin. And so as we look at our story today, in this story, Jesus was without sin. There's no way around it. Jesus didn't sin. There was no heart of rebellion in him. There was no heart and selfishness in him. That Not that he was rebelling, but he just more cared about himself and he wanted to do his own thing at the temple. There was none of that. He was without sin. If we flip the page, I'm going to reference it later, but while we're here, I figure I'll read the verse. So in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it reads, Although he, that's Jesus, was a son... He learned obedience from the things which he suffered, which is key in our story. Remember, as you're turning back to Luke chapter 2, our story today is bookend with this phrase that Jesus continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was within him. So going from birth to to 12 in our story he grew in wisdom then going from 12 to 30 he continued to mature in wisdom so we know that jesus didn't sin we know that he had no rebellion he had no selfishness in him but he did have immaturity he grew he he had to learn certain things as as we do as people this is a transitional age in our story going from childhood to, to manhood in their culture. And, and as we look at the story, we kind of have to keep this in check. And so our story begins in verse 41, and we learn a lot about his parents here. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. There were three major feasts. The Passover, only the adult men were required by law to go to this Passover. But every year the whole family went and I think often we get in our mind, we get the picture as we read the story that, okay, there's Joseph, there's Mary, there's Jesus. They're just going to the down to J Jerusalem every year to celebrate this feast. But we have to remember in Matthew chapter, what is it, 13 verses 55 and 56, we learn, a, we get a greater picture of Jesus's family. From Matthew 13, 55 and 56, we learn that there were four other boys that came after Jesus. We also see that there were sisters. We don't know how many sisters, but to get plural, it has to be at least two. So Jesus, by the end of his life, 
He was the oldest of seven. We don't know that there were seven kids in the story, but there were certainly a few kids. And so they're lugging, you know, the whole family's getting together. We're going to walk the 80 miles south to Jerusalem. They did this year after year. It would be a great time of excitement, expectation. They wouldn't just travel as a family. They would travel as a community. At least the town of Nazareth would would caravan together, which we'll see, or it could have been the region of Galilee. And so all of their people from their area, it would be all of the people from Valley Center. We're going to meet at the gas station and we're going to begin walking downtown for this huge religious celebration, friends, family, and, and they went in community every year. And verse 42 is going to show us that there was something different about this year. It says, when he became 12, they went up there according to the feast. And so now Jesus is 12. This is a turning point in a young man's life. At 13, you would have your bat mitzvah. That year between 12 and 13 was a year of transition from boyhood to manhood. And you were given more freedom. As they went into Jerusalem, Jesus would have more freedom to kind of worship, to participate in things on his own. At 12 in the caravan, when the caravans would go... They would have the women would lead the women and children would be in front of the caravan and the men would bring up the rear. Often this was for safety. Um, None of the commentators said it. But another reason I think it is, is so that the ladies could set the pace in which they walked. And so the all of the kids, the kind of like the slowest people on front, you have the toddlers toddling and the kids and everybody's kind of walking. The men are making sure that everybody's with them, that nobody's hurt. A 12-year-old boy had the freedom at this stage in his life to either be up with the ladies and the, the children or to be in the back with the men. So he could kind of rotate back and forth. So at 13, the Jewish boys would have their bat mitzvah in their, their time of going into bar mitzvah. I said bat mitzvah. Bar. Girls' bat mitzvah was at 12. Today it's at celebrated at 13. But during this time, the girls would be celebrating at 12, the boys at 13. This 12 to 13 would be a sort of A transitional period. And so they get up to Jerusalem. Verse 39. When they had performed everything. Wait a minute. I just I just went to last week's story. Sorry. That was um, we're in verse 43. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple. So what happened? The the path from Jerusalem down the steep, steep hill um, into the flatlands was a treacherous path. Often there were robbers. There were criminals there. And so as the ladies would go front In the front of the pack, the men would kind of bring up the rear, make sure everybody was safe. They travel a whole day down, some 20 miles. They get down there. Mary starts looking around going, oh, Jesus must be with Joseph. Joseph and Mary kind of connect. Joseph's like, I thought he was with you. He's not with you? Oh, man, let's go. Go to, go to your sister. I'll go to, I'll go to my brother. You go to your sister. We'll start. Who's seen Jesus? Nobody's seen him. And their first reaction, something bad happened to him. We're worried about him. Because it's really bad if you lose God. 
it's really bad if you lose your kid. I have, I haven't lost my kids yet. But as I watch older parents, as the families kind of grow and they get older, there is sort of the, oh man, we left and we left our kid at, you know, they're playing with her. We got to go back and find him. The panic sets in. Uh, what I have experienced is a couple times when we started leaving our kids with grandma and grandpa for babysitting. Ann and I hop in the car and we have two empty car seats and there's like this wave of panic. Oh, did we just leave them somewhere? No, 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 no. They're with grandma and grandpa. But that initial like sinking feeling. And so here's Mary worried about Jesus. Oh, I hope he's okay. I hope he's okay. And if he's okay, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> Moms want the satisfaction of the pot. You know, if he's okay, this means that he's to blame. She's panicking. They had, they'd walked all the way down. It took them a whole day. The next day they would walk all the way back. And then on the third day they would search around Jerusalem for him and they'd find him in the temple. And so there's Jesus in the midst of the temple. We have to remember in this story, it's clear that Mary is not happy. Mary and her, and Joseph believe that, that Jesus was in the wrong. He knew there's, he knew he should have been in the caravan. This was not the They knew what time everybody had to leave. They're panicked. He has to be hurt because certainly Jesus would be there. They're searching. They're searching. But Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus is without sin. There's no sin. There's no selfishness. There's no rebellion against his parents. And as they go find him in the temple, what they see is sitting in the midst of the teachers both listening to them and asking questions. And this is beautiful. Jesus at 12, he's introduced to us as a learner. He's listening to what the people are saying. He's then asking them questions. We're going to see that they were amazed. Every power hitter, every rabbi that was of any sort of depth would be there. And I think I lost my, who, is there anybody close to 12, a 12 year old boy in here? What's the closest? We have a 12 year old girl. We have a 12 year old girl. So we're talking, well, since we're really pretending, we're going to pretend that Emily first is a boy and then we're going to pretend that she's Jesus from there. (laughs) So, but this is like a 12 year old. This is, this is Emily is, this is what a 12 year old looks like. So there, and, and, and this would be, like, for the sake of our story, who are some of, like, the big heavy hitters, pastors, theologians, outside of Gunnar Hansen? You know, what's your next, you know, the, like, who are some names? Give me some names. Who are some, what? Yeah, alive or dead. Spurgeon. So we have Charles Spurgeon. What's another big? Chuck Smith. Somebody else. Let's start naming some names. Josephus. There's a big one. He might have been there. R.C. Sproul. Okay, Caroline's had four. We need more people. More volunteers. <laughs> Who do you see on TV? Who are like big guys? Chuck Swindoll, D- David Jeremiah, oh, Billy Graham. That was Billy Graham came up twice. You name all of the big name hitters are are somewhere at a convention. There's Emily pretending to be a boy, pretending to be Jesus, and there are all those guys. But we're taking it to modern day. She's asking questions. Or she's listening, then asking questions. And I, what's Jesus asking these guys? Hey, as you guys look through the Bible, the Old Testament, 
What are your thoughts about the Messiah and his coming? Like, what sort of questions would he be asking? Hmm, very, very interesting, very interesting. Well, well, what about this? And Jesus, all through his ministry, he taught through asking questions. And there's some, there's great value in this. Because when lecturing, as I'm lecturing, it, it only goes so far. But if you can learn something by being forced to think about it, to ponder it, and then you reach the conclusion, there's so much more weight and power in that. And so here he's asking, he's listening, he's asking questions. He has them just amazed. He's 12. This is, this is a major holiday. That all of them would come out. They'd be in the temple discussing theology, talking about the Bible, the things to come. And verse 7, this is what we read. 47. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Twelve-year-old, questioning them, listening to them. They're hearing his responses. Amazement. Emily asking, Dr. David Jeremiah, I have a question for you concerning uh, what are your thoughts on the millennium? Uh, I saw this in in the New Testament. I have a question about that. What's your, David Jeremiah, Hey, Charles Swindoll, you, you got an answer for that? No, hey, Chuck Smith, you got an answer for that? Hey, Spurgeon, you got an answer for that? Who is this kid? I don't understand. Like, this is what's going on. Amazed. Like, obviously, this person, Jesus, who Luke is trying to investigate, there's something different about him. He's not just a 12-year-old, and we're not talking prodigy, we're talking deity. Verse 48, the parents rush into the temple. Oh, praise the Lord. There's our boy. He's up on the steps on the court of the Gentiles. There he is. Wait, wait, he's got all these people. What? He has all these rabbis, Gamaliel, all these people dumbfounded them. And so they were astonished. Mary and Joseph see their son, 12 years old, has all of the people that they would have submitted to in their teaching and understanding. He has them dumbfounded, amazed at his understanding. But remember, we're talking about a mom who's upset with her 12-year-old son that didn't catch the bus on time. But her astonishment, they understood, but their astonishment quickly turns. And I want us to hear her voice. And his mother said to him, so I see her walking up, I don't care that you got all these guys by the ear, maybe in front of everybody. Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. I carried you for nine months. I feed you every single day. And this is what you do to me. How could you do this to me? Uh, Do we hear this in Mary's? She is not happy with the boy Jesus. But Hebrews 4.15, he was without sin. He was without rebellion. And I think a lesson for us to learn here is there's a distinction between rebellion and immaturity. There's a huge, we as parents or we as people who deal with other people, we could be in a situation and we could think that the person's being totally rebellious against us, that they're trying to be difficult. But the issue is simply immaturity, which isn't sinful necessarily. 
So she kind of gives her, how could you do this? Flying at 30,000 feet. Then Jesus looks at her kind of coming. So they don't even collide. Just They're just not even seeing eye to eye. He looks at her at 12. And he says, why is it you are looking for me? Like, I don't even get it. Like, why are you even searching for me? Didn't you know? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? See, Jesus, in growing in his maturity, he suddenly, like this, from being, like his understanding, his maturity has grown to where he understands the Spirit has revealed to him who he is and what he has to do. And he's having this, he knows the man that he's going to grow into. He suddenly goes to the temple, and this isn't the place of just making offering that, that I can make atonement for my sin, that suddenly with the creator and sustainer of the universe, that, that I could have relationship with him. He's suddenly there and says, the most holy of holies where the spirit of God dwelt, daddy, father. All of this system of sacrifice, I'm the sacrifice. It's going to be fulfilled in me. And so he starts making this drawing away from, he understands what he's going to be. He looks at his parents and says, you know, why are you looking for me? I had to be in my father's house. And we read this like it's not a big deal. But my father's house Highlight it. Circle it. This is the first time anywhere in scripture where somebody refers to God as father. In the Old Testament, you'll find verses, phrases of God referring to himself as Abraham's father, but you'll never see it going the other way. From this point on through the gospels, Jesus will refer to the father as his as his daddy. We're not talking like, oh, father, proper. This is like a kid, a, ta- a term for a child, daddy, father. You're... He would ultimately be put to death because of this. Because in this, they knew what happened. If he is not God, if he is not the Messiah, it's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. But he understands this is, I'm in my father's house. Verse 50, but they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and he came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Remember, at the time, she's like irate. You give, in all of us, any situation, our inclination is to assume that the 12-year-old kid is wrong. Problem with this story, we know it's Jesus. We know Jesus never sinned. So we learn that, okay, there can be immaturity, there can be miscommunication, and we can think that we're right, but we're wrong. It's another issue going on. And Mary's the one who likely conveyed this story to Luke. And she's telling this story looking backwards and saying, you know what? I mean, I, like, of course, Gabriel came, gave her the announcement that the Messiah was coming through her. But she's like, when this event happened, this was 10, 12 years later. I didn't recognize, but as I look back, he was always Messiah. There's a guy out there. He's, he's dead. He's one of the dead ones. His name is Alfred Erdesheim. He lived during the 1800s. He was a Jewish uh, rabbi. Was he a rabbi? Dave would know. Just a teacher. Just a Jewish man. He converted to Christianity, and he wrote a deep, deep thinker. And what he writes on the story, he gives a number of reasons trying to explain how could this big like disconnect happen. And I thought what he said is profound. He gives three reasons, which I'm not going to go into. 
And he picks up and he says, these three subsidiary reasons may once more be indicated here in an explanation of the virgin's mother's seeming ignorance of her son's true character. The necessary gradual, gradualness of such a revelation, the necessary development of his own consciousness, and the fact that Jesus could not have been subject to his parents, nor had true and proper human training if they had clearly known that he was the essential son of God. A further, though to us it seems a downward step, was his quiet, immediate, and unquestioning return to Nazareth with his, with his parents and his willing submission to them while there. And so what he's saying there, just in cliff notes, that in order for Jesus to be tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, he had to go through everything that we've gone through. In order to fully experience childhood growing up and maturing, he needed a mom that didn't think he was God. And so even though Mary knew and had faith with the appearance of Gabriel, God somehow had to shield her from that so she's not walking around going, Jesus can get away with murder, he's God. Whatever he says, he's right. He needed her. How could you do this? How could you do this to us, son? Hebrews 5.8 said that he, he learned obedience through like suffering. That's Gunner's translation. It says something probably a little bit different. So the idea that Jesus is growing, Mary acknowledged she doesn't get it at this point. But she was, a, she was astonished. They were definitely astonished. This would be equivalent towards, back to our example over here. See, last year, 12-year-old boy fit better. But say there, Richard, Caroline, and Emily are down. They go to the North County Mall and hold me to no statistics about the mall because I don't go there that much. So I'm going to kind of interject some things in there that may not exist. Um, They're going shopping. Emily doesn't want to go shopping because who likes to go shopping? She says, Mom, Dad, can um, can I get like... Can I get some quarters? You know, like in the old day when I was growing up, it was like eight quarters could last you a long time in the arcade. It won't last you very long, I don't think, anymore. Oh, here's some quarters. You have two hours. But at two o'clock, we need you right here at this time. Two o'clock comes. They're at that spot. Emily's not there. I'm going to kill her. I told her two o'clock. It was very clear to be here right now. Two o'clock. Panic sets in. North County Fair, like that mall has like 17 layers and cubby holes. And I'm sure children have been like misplaced in that mall before. And I can't imagine the panic of having to go every single layer of trying to find the child. In and out, three days later of frantic searching. There's suddenly like a convention center in the mall. It may be there. I don't know if it exists or not. And in there... Richard and Caroline walk in and they see, man, Chuck Swindoll's here, Chuck Smith's here, David Jeremiah, is there some sort of like pastor symposium on something? This is kind of weird. And then they look in with all of these top-notch pastors and theologians of our country and up at the, up at the stage is Emily dumbfounding them over everything. So they're like, oh, oh. Okay, now I need to go talk to her and explain to her what she did. Mary understood in hindsight what was going on, that this was amazing. In the panic, they get a hold of him, and I love Jesus' reaction. 
or, or verse 50, we'll start there. But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. They just didn't get it. And I think there's a lot of times as parents, like, or even not even as parents, but like as a pastor who kind of shepherds a lot of people, like there are times people like immaturity is not always necessarily connected to age. But you can say something and the response is like, whoa, I don't even, I can't even understand where you're coming from. And so she just doesn't get, like Jesus' answer, she doesn't get it. And Jesus is staring back at her going, I don't get why you don't get what I'm saying. But then the response in verse 51, it says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all of these things in her heart. She reflects that Jesus was not just a man. He was God. And you should have seen him dumbfound all these people. It was amazing, astonishment. And as I look at today's story, I had sort of three things that that jumped out of me that I've been wrestling through. But then there was a fourth one that I hand wrote in this morning. And the first in this story is I see that these spiritual leaders were totally amazed at Jesus. Mom and dad who met the angel Gabriel, suddenly they're astonished at what he's done. And I'd ask you, have you been become like inoculated to the Messiah? See, in two months, give or give or take, I hope it's two months. Yeah, it's two months. We're going to celebrate Easter. People are going to come out of the woodwork because people come to church on Easter and and Christmas Eve. So we're going to have more people here. And we're going to have people who love the Lord here. And I'm going to like preach. Oh, Jesus lived the perfect life. He went to the cross without sin. He who knew no sin became sin on your behalf. Our sin was placed upon him. He died. He went to the grave for three days, three nights. On the third day, he rose, appeared to all kind of people for 40 days, hundreds of people. And then in front of many witnesses, he ascended into heaven. Awesome. God became man. We're going to go through this and uh, midway through the message. That's that's amen. That's great. I'm hungry. Where do you think we could get a good lunch? On Easter. Like we talk about the greatness of God and the miracle of Jesus rising from the dead, but because we've heard it so much, we stop becoming amazed. And I'm so excited that our church is one where I hear like amazement in God's working in all things. This week, one I heard about somebody who simply was running late. And they needed a good parking space to where they were going. So they pray, Lord, could you provide a parking space? Boom, parking space is there. God is so good. He gave me a parking space. Then I come to church today and Scott Kissinger, he said I could share. He's talking about how him and his wife, they were on a five-day like hiking trip. And they were hiking up and they started seeing some weird things on the mountain. Like somebody had been dragging something. And right when they get near the top, suddenly his wife has like excruciating pain in her knee. She's like, I can't go any further. So I said, oh, he's like, all right, I guess I hope I don't have to carry you down. And they turn around. As soon as they turn around and start going back down, her knees just like it doesn't hurt. And he looks at me, he's like, days later, we found out that there's like a big old like drug thing and people doing stuff up there that's really dangerous. And I just feel like God like made her knee hurt to protect us. Like, man, that is amazing. Like, that you see that? Like, that we would have the audacity to think that the creator and sustainer of the universe 
cares about us. That he's moving in our life and that we could call out to him and he could respond in the little things and we see it. And then in the big things, a month ago, Irma and Alberto called me in tears. Hey, we got a letter. Said her cancer's back. We all prayed hard. Then like a week after that, when the doctors call and they're like, you know what? That was really unprofessional. We were not supposed to send that letter to you. You should have been in the office. We're really, really, really sorry about that. And then last night, now it's been at least, has it been a month? It's been two months? About a month. And then he calls last night and says, you know what, brother? We had a doctor's appointment. The doctor looked at all the new tests and he says, there must be some mistake because the cancer's gone. Like we can't find it anywhere. It's just a mistake. I don't know. Brother, you call it whatever you want. We prayed. God, like, and here we are. Are you astonished by God? He should amaze us. He's moving in our life. And the second thing is we need to understand that there's a difference between immaturity and rebellion. You know, I tend to be more like a cop, Navy SEAL instructor, and if, especially if you're dealing with, like, young boys. I tend to have, like, very little fuse with them. Girls, on the other hand, I have, like, uh, way, you know, way more grace. <laughs> Um, but, but I catch myself even walking the church, like on that fan, there was like some pencil scribbling above the fan and I'm getting all like agitated. I'm like, kind of rebellious little, you know, kid did this, you know, I'm like thinking, ah, is it rebellion or is it three-year-old with a pen? It's like the whole world is their tapestry. You know, it's not, has nothing to do with rebellion. I then, and we have all of the, our, this church seems to really like goldfish crackers. We consume them at an alarming rate. I think we keep them in business. They're pretty tasty. Every now and I have a snack. I go, man, these things are good. About a, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, I go into the pantry and we had the, you know, the shelves about this high. There's like 12 boxes of these big thing. And I start looking at them. And I see that of the 12, probably 10 have had, like, been attempted in being opened. And you know, like, the old milk cartons that you try to open, and sometimes you just can't get it. And if it doesn't start well, there's, like, no doing it. And so I'm going, what sort of, who did this? Why didn't they just get it? And then all of a sudden, it dawned on me. I'm like, wait, this is hilarious. This is like a six-year-old who simply wanted more goldfish. And they're trying desperately to try to get the goldfish open. They go to 10. They finally get to the ninth one. The box opens and it's like jackpot. And so that's not necessarily, that's not necessarily rebellion. It could be if they understood. I don't know who did it. Doesn't matter. We've moved the goldfish out of range. So if it happens again, we'll know it was an adult. (laughs) And then I'll feel bad because we panic just as much and we can't do it. So we'll see little kids run around. It's like, hey, you got to walk slow. It's not rebellion. You got to walk slow because there's some there's people that have a hard time and they can't see you and you got to walk slow. So there's we have an obligation to move people from immaturity to maturity. Now, on the other side of the spectrum. Immaturity is sometimes rebellion. And if you've been a Christian for 20 years and you say, oh, I'm just immature in that area, I would suggest that you're rebellious in that area. And there are times when we need to discipline. As a parent, this is like the, this is the, the most difficult 
Like, how do we know when somebody is being rebellious or just being immature? And this is where we need to go to the Lord. Lord, I need help to know. Because if it's rebellion, then we have a responsibility to discipline so that they learn to control their flesh and they don't rebel against God. But on the other hand, if it's just immaturity, we need to help them grow in who they are. So we have immaturity versus rebellion. We have nurture versus discipline. And then finally, what we see in this story is we see subjection. Doing ride-alongs, I can't tell you how often the calls are from parents to the kid that's between 12 and 18 or whatever. They don't know how to deal with it because the kid is just rebelling against everything they say, so they call the police. And I know an officer who gives a really good speech. He's right there. Just on Thursday, there's a girl, food for less, called in, mom called on a cell phone, 15-year-old girl. Dave says, listen, I, you could be telling the truth. I could believe it. I mean, it's totally possible that you're not doing drugs, that you're not doing anything wrong with your boyfriends, that you're not doing it, that you're not rebel. But your mother understands the bigger picture. And she understands the kind of the, the growing things that are going on in you and, and the hormones. And she understands like what risk you're really at. And so you need to trust that you need to submit to her and trust her in this area. And I'm the first for every young person in here that's still like under the subjection of their parents. Man, 12 to 18 for me was like the hardest range. They just want to take away all my fun. I'm a grown up. I'm like physically I'm an adult. I know all this stuff. And all they want to do is like shut the door on me and stop me from having fun. As soon as I turn 18, I'm out of here. I'll have all the freedom I want. I'm going to go through Navy SEAL training. (laughs) (laughs) See, we all laugh because see that 12 to whenever it seems horrible, but I guarantee you none of us have it as bad as Jesus. See, he's a 12 year old. He was God. He has parents that are sinners that are imperfect, that are doing the best they can. And, And here Mary's looking at like, how could you do this to me? And is he thinking, well, see, he wasn't because he was without sin. But if, if I was Jesus and God, and, and conceivably, if God could be with sin, like, you know, like the whole pit, the whole story just breaks down. But in Jesus' shoes, like, how can I do this to you? Before the earth was created and eternity passed, I knew every single hair on your head. I created you. I form you. I give you breath. I'm the creator and sustainer of the universe. Who do you think you are? So I guarantee that no matter like the divide between your parents and you, it's far less than what Jesus was going through in his example. And he went till 30 that he continued in subjection to him and to them. And Mary treasured these things in your heart. And the first thing for all of us that have trusted in Christ, I want you to go to Ephesians as we close. Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians chapter 5, the first characteristic that every Christian needs to understand is that the Christian life is all about subjection. 
that we are in subject, we are in submission to God. No matter where you are in life, you're under authority of some sort. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through chapter 6 is probably my favorite section in the scripture. 5.15 through 17 talks about, you know, basically the days are evil. Make the most of your time. Not cram as much into your, into your, your little calendar as possible, but realizing that there are key moments. And so make the most of them for the Lord. Be careful what the will of the Lord is. Verse 18 then goes to say, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit that we need to submit ourselves to the Lord and allow him to guide us, that we're yielded to him, that we're willing to go and do whatever he wants. And then in verse 21, right before he starts talking about the most intimate and practical relationships that we as people go through, husband, wife, children, parents, parents, children, workplace, it starts with verse 21. It says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, that because God redeemed us, because he loves us, because he's in control of us and we fear him, he tells us to subject ourselves to one another. And this week in my studying I heard a quote that I thought was really good. It's an African Christian saying. And in Africa, apparently, I only heard this from somebody else who was not from Africa, so I have to check it out, but I like the saying. It said that you can determine the maturity of a Christian by their reaction more than you can their actions. You can determine one's maturity by their reaction more than you can by their actions. And so the most amazing thing in this whole story in Luke is not only that Jesus was dumbfounding them, that he's Messiah, it's clear that he was able to like astonish and wow everybody there. But then when mom comes and says, how could you do this to me? He submitted himself to her and he followed after them until it was his appointed time. Like that is astonishing. And I can't tell you, I know as a Christian, I know God wants me to have certain things. And that's like... You know, people say stuff to you at work or your friends or your family and you just want to give them an earful because it feels better, right? But the Bible says, no, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Let there be not even a hint of sexual impurity. Pray for those. And so we make mistakes, we submit to the Lord and then that changes our behavior with others. So Father, we do thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for... Jesus' example, we thank you, Lord, that you preserved this one story of Jesus' youth. Father, I thank you that uh, the story of Mary, her example for us, Lord, to see that she was just a woman doing the best she could, raising the Messiah. And, and Lord, as we look at this story, we thank you, Lord, for her, just her example of going to discipline and raise uh, her children even though he was the Messiah, Lord, and the fear and admonition of the Lord. And Father, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to have wisdom between immaturity and rebellion, that we would know the balance between nurturing and disciplining. And Lord, we need help because we are not perfect. Father, we pray that as parents, when we make mistakes, you would help us to apologize to our children. Father, we desire that anybody that we deal with, Lord, that you would help us in their spiritual growth. Lord, we come before you and we long to be astonished, to be amazed by you. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to be a praying people, that we would seek you, Lord, in the little things and the big things. And, Lord, in the little things, 
down to finding a parking space. Lord, may you help us to see your action in our life. And Lord, we're just so thankful, Lord, that you are God, that you're creator, sustainer, and that we have this relationship with you. And that's amazing. Lord, help us never to get bored with, to be inoculated by, with your grandeur, with your holiness, with your powerfulness. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.